All right, I think we're live. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for uh, choosing to spend part of your pandemic time with uh, with me today. I know you probably have uh, a lot of cho other choices for where you spend your time. So, uh, you know, when this, uh, when we first started uh, talking about presenting at this conference, it was, uh, of course, before the pandemic hit. And that's when I came up with the title that you'll see listed there, talking about, you know, how do we use this technology for good in healthcare and education? Well, I'm still going to stick to that here, but I, I think you will see, and I think it's important that we do pivot to talk about what's on all of our minds, which is how do we actually use it to help us navigate with health, better health outcomes and education outcomes uh, in the midst of the existential crises we're all dealing with. Uh, and, and I'm going to be talking about how do we actually partner with these machine technologies to help us get better outcomes. So these are some of the topics that I want to talk with you about today. And I know we have a short amount of time to talk about uh, these, these things. And then afterwards, I hope you'll join me in one of the breakout rooms and we'll uh, dig a little bit deeper because I know there are a lot of great voices out there that uh, we can join together to, to come up with better ideas. But I do want to talk about machine learning and how I got religion on it and how, uh, how we're using it actively right now to solve, for, uh, uh, solve problems during the pandemic and also how we're using it in education and healthcare. Uh, then I want to talk about this uh, sort of critical problem of, man, there's so much information out there. Everything's moving really fast. How do you use technology to figure out what is reliable, what is true, right? Uh, really big problem for us here in the U.S., but, but everywhere, especially when things are moving really fast. So we'll talk about that. And then we'll talk about the importance of expert-backed, data-driven decisions. How do you use technology to harness that and make sure that you're solving for the problems that are really unique to your community. So thinking about this city rising sort of uh, uh, overall subject here, how do we use that uh, technology to, to make sure that we're tuning for what's unique about our individual communities? Uh, and then we'll get into simulation and agent-based models, and of course, some of the ethical considerations of all this. So that's what I have planned for you. I hope uh, it's worth your time and, and let's go ahead and dig in. Uh, first of all, I think it's important to understand my perspectives, you understand where I'm coming from. Uh, as my friend Alan Kay says, I think perspective is worth 80 IQ points, and that's the only thing that, that I think uh, permits me to be able to take stages like this and talk to folks like you, is the unique perspective that, that I believe I bring uh, on subjects like this. So this is kind of my whole street cred slide, everything I've done over the last 30 years, really. And you know the beginnings of it was all in computer gaming, um, and I want to mention that here because uh, if any of you are computer gamers, you know in the '90s we were building computer game companies with like Tom Clancy. So if you played any of the Red Storm Entertainment games, those that was created by us. We did game companies with Michael Crichton, with Ozzy Osbourne, <laughs> even with science fiction writer Douglas Adams. But if you think about it, we're building these little synthetic artificial worlds and populating them with artificial people. So uh, that, and we had to use AI to do that. And I want to bring some of that up to where we are today and how we can use it in, uh, in, the, in the world we have today. Um, now, right after September 11th, I created this company called 3D Solve, which you'll see in the center there. Um, 
that, uh, um, sorry, current slide. I was trying to see one of your, I saw questions were coming in or chat was coming in. So I was gonna look at them, but let me just forge ahead here in the time we have. I created this company, 3D Solve, uh, to take the game technology that we've been working on for a decade and apply it to shortening the path to mastery, to simulation learning, what's today called serious games. Uh, Lockheed Martin, the big you know, defense company, aerospace company, bought that uh, uh, in 2007. And I created this group to work with AR, VR, and artificial intelligence as well. And that also uh, will feed into some of the things we're gonna talk about today. So I wanted you to know that background so it makes sense as, I, as we walk through these capabilities. But this is what I really think is the critical problem of the century. As the title of this talk uh, that drew you here uh, indicates, I'm really thinking about how do we achieve the right balance between human intelligence and machine intelligence, human effort and machine effort, human attention and machine attention to optimize the outcome. I firmly believe that in all these areas of endeavor, whether it's in healthcare, but especially in healthcare, but even in education and trying to govern our way through pandemics and other uh, natural disasters and those sorts of events, that we need to figure out that balance uh, and one of the little jokes I always talk about is, I really think it's almost, um, uh, uh, you know, not good enough just to be a, it's insufficient to be a standalone human being. Uh, we haven't had an upgrade by my reckoning since I think the Pleistocene. And the, in this accelerating world of increasing complexity, we need help. And luckily we've also built some great tools that can help us. And that's what I want to achieve here is that balance. We don't take the human out of the decision process or the creative process, but we extend ourselves with these sort of exocortical extensions of ourselves that solve for good. And that's what this whole conference is about. Now, I want to uh, take you back here. I just pulled this up like literally 10 minutes before this, comp this uh, session started as I was thinking about it. I'm going to take you back to 2012. It was the last, I mean, it was the uh, Super Bowl. And we had this weird moment where it's right at the end of the game. I think the uh, 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 Patriots were ahead by just a little bit. Uh, I'm sorry, the, yeah, the Patriots were ahead by just a little bit. And if the Giants just score a field goal, uh, they can probably win the game, but there's still a lot of time left. So uh, Ahmad Bradshaw was told when, they handed, when Eli Manning handed them the ball, said, don't score. And that's such a weird thing, right? Because everything in his training, everything in his he's done up and up to that point in his life has told him, take that ball and your job is get it across that goal line, right? And that's his human instinct. That's what's driving him. And what he did instead is he, if you remember this, he ran up to the, to the goal line, stopped, tried not to score, but couldn't help it and fell in, um, uh, fell into the goal, uh, across the goal line. Uh, Billy Crystal, the comedian called it a tush down. Uh, but that's this, you know, I paused at that point and said, like, that's this really weird existential moment. And I just read Competing on Analytics. That book had come out, I think, in 2010. And it's where Moneyball and all these things we talk about today were, again, like I said, I believe it is insufficient to be a human being trying to go with your gut and your instinct when the complexity is just far beyond the human capacity to monitor and manage. Um, in fact, if you're playing for the Patriots today and you're a defensive coordinator, offensive coordinator, and you decide to call a play with your gut against what the data is telling you to do, Belichick's gonna fire you. Uh, and that's the way we should be in, in all of these really important areas 
of our lives today where human life is in the balance and people are using their guts or winging it. You can't wing it anymore, right? There's, it's too important. And we've got really, we have these great tools to be able to deal with it. So I'm gonna talk quickly about, I know this audience is very well read and you guys understand what machine learning is, but I wanna talk about it just quickly so you understand how we're applying it today uh, in the pandemic and in healthcare and education. So this is 2009. This is the time when I actually got religion on machine learning. We've been working with artificial intelligence, as I said, for a while in computer gaming and other areas. Uh, but I was called out when I was at Lockheed Martin to meet Alex Kipman there, who's the inventor of the Microsoft Connect. There's Jaron Lanier on my, let's see, left shoulder, uh, who's the guy who came up with the term virtual reality. And you know, he's you probably read a lot of his books. Uh, but they were trying to solve for you know, they'd shipped Xboxes all over the world. They had about 100 megabytes of available space in them. And they needed a little brain in there that could recognize just what a living room was. Difference between a cat and a dog and a plant and a chair and a table. Uh, and difference between people and different lighting conditions. Now that sounds really simple to us, but computationally, especially then, that was a really difficult problem. The way they solved it is with machine learning, which is take a massive set of examples, feed it to a set of machine learning algorithms, uh, you know, millions and millions of examples of what does a European living room look like or a Japanese living room or an American living room, what things might you see in all these conditions. And if you give it enough examples, it can infer its own understanding. That really shocked me. It changed how I uh, thought about problems. And I went back to Lockheed Martin back then and said, all right, I've got a new set of tools. We have a new button on the calculator. Uh, first project I worked on was called the Learning Registry. This is uh, uh, the, the Secretary of Education at the time, Arnie Duncan, said, we're going to do digital transformation. Sounds familiar now, but back then, again, it was about 2010. And we're they were looking at things like the Library of Congress and, you know, everything in the Smithsonian. And the, the issue there was, you know, human experts were sitting there trying to like scan in items like this cup and then and then tag it with this is an ancient Grecian drinking vessel or whatever it is. Um, and it was just taking too long. So we ended up building a system that could be trained on everything that had already been tagged by experts and they could look ahead to everything else and anything it felt above a certain confidence level, it could go ahead and tag it. But this is the main issue. Like, here today in 2020, we're still talking about big data. Man, everybody's got big data, but it's a big leap from big data to information, which is data that's been organized, that's been tagged, right? And an even bigger leap from information to intelligence, which is that information that has some sort of function or um, uh, model or computation on it that, that allows a human to act on it. Um, and that uh, is where we want to be today. And we'd be a lot better off if we'd swung all the way through this ball, but we're still swinging. Now, one of the things that we did that, that uh, I feel was a big breakthrough was we realized that, man, we have all this computational power. Um, and uh, you know, when, I, when we were looking at what they were doing with the Microsoft Connect, it actually took them 24,000 hours of CPU time just to train that system that, by the way, ended up fitting on 60 megabytes of space. So really, really efficient. Um, but today we've got GPUs, we have all this extra power. So because we have this extra power, we started tagging things. When we tag something, you know, our, if our system would read, for example, war and peace in the Library of Congress, a human might tag it with five or six 
things like this is a book by Tolstoy. It's a Russian novel. It's in a time of war. Uh, it, it's a love story. Uh, we would tag it with up to 4,000 weighted conceptual nodes or, or uh, models. And we call that a hyperdimensional fingerprint. Now that's really, turns out really useful. It sounds like it's overkill, but it's really useful for pairing people to people, people to content as they need it. So let's talk about how we apply that. You know, one of the early things we did, and you can do with machine learning, is we just found every single legal opinion in US history, dumped it into a machine learning system, let it read all that stuff, and let it develop its own understanding of the law. And it took, you know, almost 4 million opinions. We're talking about everything since 1797. That's the kind of thing we can do today. And it, the real thing is, or the real challenge is, can you find the data? If you can get the data and know that it's reliable data, it doesn't even have to be structured or tagged. We have systems that can read that, can build an understanding. And especially if you can bound the context and make it specialized, IBM has learned this, Google has learned this, everyone who's working with machine learning has learned it, it gets really powerful very quickly, but it, you have to bound the context. So that's kind of, a, it's one of these new tools we have. So I promised I'd talk about education, so I'll just mention this really quickly so you understand, you know, one of the key problems in the 21st century, because of the, we're all being sort of inundated with information is, where do I spend my attention? You know, Herbert Simon said, uh, uh, human attention is, is the most valuable commodity of this century, right? Um, and so, uh, so sorting through everything, getting rid of things that maybe are not reliable or haven't been proven yet, and then focusing on the and surfacing the items that are really reliable, relevant, that's critical. One of the things we're doing here in North Carolina is we're tying all 58 community colleges together with this sort of companion machine learning brain system. There's a bunch of articles out there you'll be able to find talking about it where, you know, we trained it initially on, you know, what's unique about the community college system and, and what, what kinds of concepts and topics and data and people are involved. Let's train a system that a little mini like Watson-like thing that only cares about that, right? And then let's bring humans in to start curating it. So now if I'm teaching a class on the fourth industrial revolution, I can have a, this is just one example interface, but I'm able to like let the system bring everything it, it thinks is relevant to this topic, even though I might be coming up with a new topic uh, label for things. And then I can go through and say, I as a human expert in this field, think that this one item in this context is really useful. It's really true, it's relevant. It's um, the quality of it's high. The complexity is high. And those little um, human tags on that not only train the machine learning system better about how to help me better, but now it helps the organization better. So now any knowledge that's gained uh, by, you know, uh, faculty in these, the 10,000 faculty in these 58 community colleges going out to conferences like this, bringing it back, it doesn't just stay on their computer or on a thumb drive or in a notebook. It gets mapped and and uh, uh, organized within all 58 community colleges. So, so the minute someone else sits down and says, you know, I want to make a course on the fourth industrial revolution, they don't even have to search. They just start doing their work and the system starts rating and bringing uh, items to their attention that say, you know, here are a bunch of really high value objects that are, have already been done that can really help you do the thing you're trying to do. So this is a new view of how to do knowledge management, but also how to just 
understand organizational knowledge. Like, what do you have? What do you know? What do your people know? Who are your most active people on what subjects? Um, that's really valuable for the curation of, uh, of information. And this is, you know, I could do an hour just on this topic, but we don't have time. So we're going to move on. Um, there's lots of stuff happening in education where I believe we can really apply machine learning to solve. You know, the biggest one, if I'll start over here on the right with Alan Kay, my friend there. And, uh, you know, we've been talking for years about the Young Ladies Illustrated Primer, this idea within Neil Stevenson's book, Diamond Age, around truly personalized learning, a device and a system that can really guide someone on a personalized learning path and get them to a shorter path to mastery than any other method. Um, the ultimate intelligent tutor, right? Um, so that I believe we can achieve with uh, machine learning. But the other piece of it, I think is even almost more important. And I, I brought this up today because I saw this on CBS News this week one morning. Um, a couple of years ago, I'd worked with uh, Mark Brackett and uh, over at Yale on this thing called the ruler approach. And the whole purpose of his sort of system, um, if you've heard about it, is to really teach empathy, to, to help us understand students and help students understand each other um, and a deeper understanding. And then that's part of this, you know, personalized learning path. It's not just the, you know, here are the courses you should take and in which order, but also here's all the sort of other elements that go in that are really unique to you that will guide you along a more successful path in life. So I think that's incredibly uh, interesting. And I wanna talk about that at the end and I'll show you a live example. So bear with me. So let's talk about that. You know, Cambridge Analytica back in 2016 uh, really uh, showed us sort of the dark side of what you can do with these powerful technologies. What they were able to do is identify groups of people who were susceptible to a certain kind of message and then just start uh, a campaign of little mini micro agreements that start with something small, lead to a larger path. So they finally move someone from a position of, you know, I don't know whether to be a Republican or a Democrat to moving all the way to one side. And it turns out to not be very difficult to do. We'll talk about that. But how do we use that for good? You know, I, I really miss conferences like this. And I, I was saying at the beginning with some of the folks when we first came on that, you know, I wish we could all be together in, in, uh, in person because I know there's a lot of smart people out there with a lot of great ideas. And, you know, that's part of this uh, is uh, getting together, talking about these ideas. How do we make the world better? Uh, we need more conferences like this, to be honest. But I met, uh, I was fortunate enough to meet some of the people in this picture here. I'll just say quickly, you know, the guy in the beard there is Dr. Richard Carson from UCAL San Diego. He's the head of the economics department there. Several White Houses in a row um, call on him whenever they want to understand, like, what's the impact of the Exxon Valdez spill or the BP oil spill or climate change or any of these other issues. Uh, he's a guy who can sort of break all that down into algorithms and economic impact equations to help them manage and navigate it. Uh, the other person sitting below me there is Dr. Jordan Louvier, who's, um, I believe, the most cited author, uh, academic uh, in the field of choice modeling. How do you actually model how humans make choices um, and break that down to algorithms? Uh, and then I've got uh, uh, Kevin Clark here, who's a senior marketing person at IBM, who uh, is using a lot of these technologies. So one of the first books they had me read is this book called Everybody Lies. And again, this is a, gets back to, man, we get, how do we figure out in this 
dizzying array of information being thrown at us, what's true, what's reliable. Uh, but the, I don't know if you've read this book, but the, the, the whole point of it is, I'll sum it up for you, is, you know, exit polls and surveys uh, did not reveal, did not, you know, point us towards Donald Trump. They didn't predict Donald Trump. They didn't predict Brexit, a lot of things. Um, what did predict those things is, uh, is Amazon purchase data, Google search data, Nielsen watch data. So in other words, look at what people do with their time, their money, and their attention not what they say. And it's not because all of us are really liars. Uh, another subtext of this book is we poor human beings make very, we make very poor witnesses to our own narratives. Even when we're trying to tell the truth, how many glasses of wine do you drink a week? How many, you know, cigars do you smoke? Uh, how often do you exercise? What foods do you eat? We think we're telling the truth, but you know, the, the data, you know, what's in our trash can, what's in our grocery store uh, receipts, and what we buy on Amazon, that tells a more true story of who we really are than what we actually, the, the narrative we have playing in our head. So let me just uh, put a pin in that for a second. And I'll take you back to when I was at Lockheed Martin. Uh, I'd already been doing gaming for a while, but when I got to Lockheed, we took it to another level, right? So we were actually building simulations of entire countries. So Afghanistan, you know, uh, and when we modeled the people in Afghanistan, uh, you know, we didn't say, oh, there's like two or three types of people. There's Sunnis, Shias, Coptic Christians. You've got your, you know, your USAID people, your U whatever. We would have thousands of agent-based models, each representing, you know, varying sets of values, traditions, points of view, perspectives. And what you'd want to be able to do then is go in and say, well, what if we build a school for girls here in Helmand province? which groups of people are gonna like it, which are gonna be neutral, and which are gonna be angry. Are there anybody, is there anybody gonna be angry about it enough to wanna blow up the school or shoot Malala, right? And, and uh, that, that's a very useful capability to predict and not be surprised by activities of people. So we've been doing this for a while. Um, and uh, that is what's informing some of the work that we're doing today around uh, taking everything I just talked about. Don't take what people say in surveys and focus groups. Take the data exhaust we're all leaving behind out there as we go through Amazon and watch TV on, on cable and get, do our Google search. Um, we leave all this data, and, and especially social media, we leave this data exhaust behind. That can be harvested like Cambridge Analytica did. Uh, and we can model people. We can build a synthetic population model of everybody in the US, honestly, and then put them into a little sim world and predict how they're gonna behave around different, uh, different things. Is that important today in the middle of a pandemic? You bet. So I'll just, I'll jump through this quickly because I wanna make sure I have time to get through all these points and show you the live demos. But using this idea of data exhaust harvesting, we were able early on to do things like, let's, who do we have a lot of data on? Well, lots of authors, people out there on the internet. So we made models of like Victor Hugo, right? So read everything he's ever written, but especially read all of his personal correspondence and all the critical sort of narrative about him out there. Build an interest graph sentiment model of him, put him on the internet and see what he does. That's what we did initially. We could go visit him every day. He's reading stuff, he's watching YouTube videos, he listens to podcasts and we can see you know, what he thinks about them and what are the sources of information he goes to most often. Uh, and so we call this an empathy engine. I'm like looking at the world now through Victor Hugo's eyes. And I can do this with anybody I've got enough information on, right? 
and this gets really interesting. So now let's start mapping it back to how do we make our communities better? How do we manage pandemics? How do we have better health outcomes, education outcomes? Um, so you can start taking the models of these people and maybe you just have them as a set of mentors. You can have, pose questions to them, get how they, from their values, traditions and perspectives, how do they feel about the thing that you're talking about? Or if you wanna get even more straightforward, let me model all the people that live in my community in let's say the town of Morrisville near, here, near me in, here in North Carolina and say, you know, if I do a school bond referendum that with a two year half cent tax hike, which groups of people are gonna be really good with it? Which are gonna be opposing it? Those people who are opposing it, why are they opposing it? What do they feel? Um, is there any room for motion there? Can I understand who their influencers are, their sources of information and go reach them with a narrative that moves them? Uh, and then mapping this back to education, what if I could let students actually have some communion with you know, Justice Thurgood Marshall or Martin Luther King or John von Neumann or Sir Isaac Newton. I mean, I think we're there now where we can do that and it's getting really interesting really fast. Um, and all the way down to where we can actually write to people. And as I, as I write something down, like a value statement or a proposition, or I, you know, if I'm doing marketing, I'm creating an ad, or, or if I'm a politician, a local county commissioner trying to push the school bond referendum, I'm coming up with the language that I want to use in my speech to talk to different sets of constituents. And what I'll be able to see here is just changing the words in real time. I can see each of their perspectives in real time change. And that this helps me govern like what words, what tones, what references do I use for each one of these groups of people to try to persuade them uh, in the direction where we'd like them to go, right? And this is getting really interesting, really powerful. And I know you're already thinking about the black mirror implications of that. We'll talk about that hopefully at the end. But again, really interesting. Uh, uh, last year, at, uh, I spoke at a Comic-Con in Seattle and I was able to actually bring, Stan Lee had just passed recently. We were able to actually go and harvest everything on the net about him. And he'd done lots and lots of interviews, both in print, on radio, video. So it's actually pretty straightforward and easy with him. Um, and I actually let the audience actually ask him questions live. Uh, and he would answer those questions, right? Who would win in a battle between Hulk and Thor? He would tell you what he thinks because he's answered it before. Um, that looks like a parlor trick maybe, but I mean, it's, it's, it's again, very interesting. And then there's a whole stuff, bunch of stuff you can read out there about my dad. My dad died in 2017. And again, just like Ray Kurzweil wants to do with his dad, I couldn't resist. So I actually have a model of my father running. I can talk to him. I can go see what he thinks about what's happening today with the current news. Again, we don't have time to dig deeper, maybe in the uh, after session here. Uh, so let's talk a little bit more about narratives. Um, you know, in 2016 or 17, uh, right after the 2016 election, I was part of this little working group uh, with the Pentagon uh, looking at, you know, what just happened and what's Russia doing? Is, is there such thing as propaganda today and how do we combat it? And how do we get over the fact that Americans are now really squeamish about this idea of counter narratives? Um, and hopefully we're past that because it's really happening. There is, and we're all seeing that today. There's, uh, there's competing narratives out there in space. And some of them have a little, you know, the most, the most powerful narratives have some kernel of truth and then they're potentially being manipulative after that. So uh, how do we do that for good? How do we use this 
capability for good. So forget Cambridge Analytica. Let's look at things like, you know, I like to ask people, you know, if you've eaten kale recently or seen it on the menu, I think all of us have by now. But only seven years ago, the number one buyer of kale in the United States was Pizza Hut. And it wasn't for eating. Nobody was eating kale. Um, it was for putting on the ice in between the salad bar uh, dishes because it stays green a long time. But uh, understanding some of these technologies, there's this uh, American Kale Growers Association with a membership of one who uh, started identifying the susceptible groups of people out there uh, and saying like, how do we move people from iceberg lettuce is fine to all of a sudden demanding kale you know, with a carbon neutral footprint at 15 bucks a plate that's properly massaged, which happened. That happened in a short amount of time. And the, this is the technology that was used. It was identify the people, figure out who their influencers are, get Gwyneth Paltrow to talk about it or tweet about it, have Rachel Ray create a recipe book about it. Um, and, uh, and again, it's not just like one well-crafted message or sentence. It's this like set of micro agreements like you know, darker green vegetables are a little bit better for you than lighter green ones, right? Yeah, we all agree on that. Now let's move for, you know, kale's a dark green vegetable. Well, it doesn't taste that good. But what if there was a way to prepare it in which it really did taste good then? And then, you know, you go from there with influencers. Next thing you know, people are demanding kale and buying it and you're seeing it in the grocery store. It happened. All right. So now I want to jump. I think I'm, let me check time here. Yeah, let's, uh, Let's go ahead and uh, jump here very quickly to a quick demo live before I lose my time. So here's the pandemic happening. Here's competing narratives. I've got you know the top 10 populations of people that live in my community. And here's this counter narrative saying, you know, COVID is a hoax. Uh, you don't have, you just go about your normal life. You don't need to wear a mask. And if I add influencers to it, you'll see that some of these people actually move further down this narrative line than others. Uh, and I'm, I can actually see the impact of that. I can play with things like my healthcare capacity, how many beds do I have? I can play with my SEIR model and I can test again, what do I have to say or do? What incentives or punishments do I have to put in place for each of these groups of people to make sure I don't have these crazy red lines with these you know, unnecessary numbers of deaths? Um, the other thing that we have here, and I'll show this very quickly, you know. I think today, again, being a standalone human being is insufficient. What you want is expert-backed, data-driven decision-making. So this is what we've done here in North Carolina with CARES Act funding, working with UNC and a nonprofit called DHIT, where I can just choose my county. Um, I've got tons of data that flows in here that tells me, um, I'm going to log in again, and I've got these submetrics. So when the podium comes out and the cameras roll up and the microphones get stuck in my face and I'm the mayor, I'm the governor, and someone says, why did you make the decision you did on October 1st? I'll be able to drill down into this and say, well, here's the data that was rolling up into each one of these metrics that governed what I should do. And this is how we made our decision. I didn't go with my gut. I didn't go with my instincts. I'm not listening to two or three pundits or, or people that have a, an agenda. This is an expert-backed, data-driven, hierarchical drill down that I can actually stand right in front of you right now and answer. And if you start asking me questions about what I, you know, what I did, I can go right here and I can say, well, let me let's go uh, uh, inspect the 805 live data records around PPE uh, usage, available beds, 
mobility, mass transit use, uh, temperature, everything that feed all the way up and the custom models that I use driven by experts that drove the decisions that I made on that day. And the great thing here is if you're a community leader, you, you're, you're off the hot seat, right? You're saying, don't look at me, look behind me at this dashboard. This is how we make decisions. It's not me, you know, guessing and winging it. It's, it's this, this is what we need more of. Uh, and it's, we didn't have this capability, this new button on the calculator five, six, 10 years ago. We have it today, we need to use it. Uh, reliable information, as expert-backed data-driven decision-making uh, that can come from even unstructured data, and then simulation models like these that help me understand like whether it's how do I get Coke uh, drinkers to drink more Pepsi, or how do I get people who uh, are not uh, staying at home and, and wearing protective equipment to agree that that's the right thing to do by reaching their influencers or sources of information, using the right words and levers, incentives and punishments to optimize the behavior. And I think I'm out of my time. So I'm, uh, again, there's more to talk about. I hope we'll be able to talk in the, uh, in the uh, uh, breakout sessions here soon.